Crawford's just better now. That's all you can say. Run, Lindsey! Lindsey Scott! Lindsey Scott! Lindsey Scott! Welcome to the Blog the Dogs podcast. I'm Herschel Gurley here as always with my co-host, Boss Dog. Boss Market to people. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, today we're doing another interview. Today uh, we have Jim Callis. Yeah, we're pumped to talk with Jim. You know, a little change up. I know we talk about football a lot most of the time here, but I uh, wanted to get some baseball stuff in. And Jim has, you know, fantastic knowledge about dogs. Baseball covered Georgia baseball for the red and black when he was a student there. Actually, was the reporter on scene for the dog's first college world series appearance in 87 he told a lot of phenomenal stories about the 87 run the 90 run and then just shares an all-time theory about the 08 dogs uh run in omaha so look forward to that but uh, we're we're super appreciative to jim for joining us make sure and follow him on twitter at jim callis mlb that's c-a-l-l-i-s at jim callis mlb also give at mlb pipeline a follow on twitter jim is involved very heavily with mlb pipeline that's kind of where he puts out a lot of his knowledge as well so check all that out jim's always putting out great content just an encyclopedia of knowledge about not just dogs baseball but baseball in general so super interesting conversation and uh, we are excited for you to hear it. Here is Jim Callis. We are extremely excited to have Jim Callis with us today. Uh, Jim is a 1988 graduate of the University of Georgia. He is the former sports editor of the Red and Black. He is the current senior writer for MLB.com, uh, does MLB Pipeline, has over 30 years of experience evaluating prospects, doing writing for Major League Baseball and Minor League Baseball. He is the former executive editor of Baseball America, spent time as a senior analyst with Stats Inc. And we are more than thrilled to have you today, Jim. Welcome to the show. Oh, glad to be here. This is going to be fun. Yeah. So, Jim, obviously the reason we, we want to talk to you first off is you're a Georgia grad, but but I know from, from what I've read, you went to high school, grew up in the Northern Virginia area. Is that correct? That, that is correct. I went to Oakton High School. You know, it's, I'm trying to think like uh, famous alumni Cochran, who won Survivor, I think went to Oakton after me. I think the guy who invented Napster went to Oakton. We've got, there's a player in the Mariners system named Joe Rizzo, um, went to Oakton. I'm, I'm sure I'm forgetting. We've had, a, Evan Fredrickson was a supplemental first round pick out of college, but it's uh, it's in the Fairfax area, not too far outside of D.C. Yeah, and so for, for all the folks that are Dogs fans that maybe aren't as familiar with the Virginia area, uh, Fairfax County and City of Fairfax are just a little bit outside of D.C. in the Northern Virginia area. Boss, my co-host, and I are familiar with it because we are from a small town in Virginia, Tappahannock, which is right outside of Richmond, Virginia. So uh, very, familiar, very familiar with the Northern Virginia area. So necessitates the next question, which is, how does a kid from Northern Virginia going to Oakton High School find his way down to the Classic City and the University of Georgia? Well, it's funny because my high school journalism teacher, I really enjoyed writing for the school paper at Oakton. She had relatives who owned a newspaper. I don't remember the town anymore. It was a small town somewhere near Athens. And I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into journalism or go to business school. So the idea was when I got into Georgia, I got into the business school and I would work for this, this small town newspaper, see which one I liked more and make a decision. And it turns out I never wound up working for that newspaper, but I did wind up working for Red and Black. Uh, we were on the quarter system back then. I don't know how many years they've been on the semester system, but it was quarter system. So for like false quarter, I didn't, I didn't do anything. 
maybe it was late in the fall quarter. It's like there was a guy, a friend of a friend, did music reviews for the paper. And so I wound up going in. The sports desk had nothing for me. The first story I wrote for Red and Black was actually a movie review of a terrible, terrible movie by Jim Carrey was in. I think one of his first starring roles called Once Bitten, where oh, Lauren yeah. Hutton was a vampire who was trying to seduce him. I think she needed the blood of young virgins or something. And hygiene. Yeah. it was terrible. Terrible it was a movie. For, but that, it was a former HBO favorite. It used to run on the syndicate, you know, like uh, when oh, HBO sure. was trying to fill time. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, anyway, that was my first start. And then after that, I actually – I think my first assignment on the sports desk was I covered the basketball team for a while and I'm not basketball's probably it is my least favorite of the four main sports and I probably know the least about it. And then I, you know, kind of you know realized really soon that I enjoyed working for the paper more than I enjoyed business school. So I, I switched to the Grady School and, and was a journalism major after that. So my understanding is your first season covering baseball for the Red and Black was 1987, which was fortuitous, not just for, for you, but for the dogs, because they, they made a trip to Omaha that year. Could you talk a little bit about that and what that experience was like? Yeah, it's like my memory's not what it used to be, but I almost could probably give you the starting lineup if I thought about it, like position by position. No, I, I love covering the team. I mean, it was great because we're really the only outlet covering the team. I mean, the Athens paper a little bit, the Atlanta paper a little bit, but not really even like until they got to Omaha and I was covering the team every day. Um, you know, it's school paper. So, I mean, you're, you're getting right up every game story. I was doing feature. Usually I would preview the weekend series by doing a feature on one of the players. And over the course of a season, I mean, you get through most of the team doing that. And it was a great team. I mean, we had two first round picks in Derek Loquist and, and Chris Carpenter who weren't just first round picks, but went in the first 14 picks. If I remember correctly, the Braves and Cardinals, Steve Carter was a player who got a cup of coffee in the big leagues. He was on that team and it was just a, it was a great team. I mean, they, they won the SEC regular season title. I don't know how many times they've done that, but not very often. Um, it was first time in years. And back then this was before they started promoting conference baseball tournaments. So rather than having it at Hoover every year, it would be at the regular season champion. Um, and so Georgia hosted the, the SEC tournament that year um we actually went two and out we lost first two games got eliminated um the most memorable thing was 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 albert bell who was then known as joey bell was playing for lsu and even before we got eliminated mississippi state had the best fans that traveled the best in the sec so there were georgia was not a big draw back then there was a ton of mississippi state fans at our games and i don't know how when your first experience with foley field was it looks much different than when i went to school back then this before they renovated in 90 or 91. It was, I mean, the field was nice conditions, but you basically had bleachers on the first base side and third base side, you know, kudzu Hill, a bunch of kudzu out in the right field where people would sit out there. And the press box as it was would hold like maybe six people. Like it held the two radio guys and it would hold the sports, the sports formation director for baseball, Graham Edwards and me as the one reporter who was there all the time and maybe two other people. Um, it was, and it was on top of a concession stand, kind of like a little league setup. Um, so they had to build a new press box to accommodate all the media kind of between home plate and the third base side of the bleachers. And so unfortunately, I mean, it was very ramshackle. There was lumber lying around Foley field from this, uh, impromptu press box. They had to construct on the fly and the Mississippi state fans were, uh, shouting racist taunts. At, at, at Joey Bell. He was a he that one by Joey and he had enough. And I remember there was a game, I, probably third round. 
he had enough and he grabbed a two by four and started walking out towards Kudzu Hill. He was playing right field. There were fans were in right field yelling at him and Pete Bush, the LSU first base had to go out. I, I don't think he was really going to attack them. I think he wanted to give the impression that here I come with a two by four and, um, first baseman Pete Bush ran up and like bear hugged him. And he, I don't know if he played after that. He got, he got suspended for that. Um, and that might've been his last college game, but it was, it was kind of a memorable thing. But so anyway, we went from that and then we went to the regional was at George tech. So again, for me, this is great. I can cover that easy. That's Atlanta. Right. And it was like, it was great. I remember going to Florida state. I drove down to Florida state. I drove to Georgia Southern, all these road games. So anyway, I went to Georgia. And so we lose, I, I didn't know the national scene. So our first game, we're facing um, – we, oh, it was uh, Fordham. I'm like, okay, Fordham. We'll beat Fordham. Pete Harnish is pitching for Fordham, who is also a first-round pick, long-time big leaguer. Yeah. He beats us. So I'm like, oh, this is like you – know, we're, we're, I think we were the first game. Like you know, It's hard. Back then, the regionals were different. There were 16 regionals. And if you lost, you basically had to win, I think, five or six games in three days. It was very tough to come back out of the loser's bracket. It was tough. So I'm like thinking we're in trouble. So then second game, Michigan's there, Jim Abbott. He was, I don't think he pitched their first game. He was not their ace, but Michigan faced Dartmouth who had Mike Remlinger on the mound. So again, you're thinking Michigan's going to roll over these guys. Mike Remlinger beats Michigan. So Michigan's in the loser's bracket. So like tech, this is just breaking my heart. Reliving the story tech <laughs> has like golden path. The two good teams in their bracket have lost. The two teams that beat them have used their ace pitcher. They're facing Ryder, which was a sub 500 team, which got in by winning their conference tournament. And they lost to Ryder. I don't know how Georgia Tech lost to Ryder, upset them. So then the the morning game, day two, is us playing Georgia Tech. Loser's done. And uh, it's like I still remember these guys. Scott Broadfoot, who was in, uh, I think, one of my marketing classes, one hit Tech, bam, they're out. Their first team eliminated, kills their regional, and we came back through the loser's bracket and, and went to Omaha, where we lost two straight, which was typical. A lot of times when you're a new team, you haven't been there, you either get crushed where you play just well enough to lose and we lost two one run games, but it was great. And, and between the red and black and the school, I think the school paid half, but the red and black talked to the athletic department said, he's the only guy who's been covering you all season. They paid for me. I got to go to Omaha. That was my first college world series. So, Oh man, it was, it was, I, I still have fond memories of that. Yeah. What an experience. So for everybody listening, y'all can't see, but Jim has a framed picture on his wall of Rosenblatt stadium. So obviously Omaha is special to you. I mean, not just a cool thing because the dogs were there, but I mean, Hey man, heck of a college world series to cover some of the names that were there. I mean, you're looking at Arizona state, Arkansas, Florida state, LSU, Oklahoma state, Stanford, and Texas, all there guys, like you mentioned, you know, Jack uh, McDowell Al- beat Georgia in the first game and, yeah, and, Georgia, ba- and the Stanford team was low. They wound up winning. They had a bunch of, future big leaguers on that team. Um, and then we lost to Arkansas one run game late. And we actually got a hurricane delay. We had the game. Uh, I guess it was tornado, not hurricane in the Midwest, but a yeah. tornado delay. And so we actually had our game postponed against Stanford in the late innings, came back, lost, and then came back later that day and lost the second game to Arkansas. But now it's, um, I tell people all the time, that's my favorite, favorite baseball event still. I've only missed, only two I've missed since then were 1988 when I was still at Georgia and we didn't go back. And then 2008, when Georgia almost won, my wife was sick, um, and she's fine now, but I couldn't go that year. But I've been every year, not necessarily to every game, but to every championship game and, and, and the bulk of the games. And, and the coolest thing was, so I went to Baseball America in 1989. December 88, I graduated. Winter meetings were in Atlanta. I drove straight to winter meetings, started working for Baseball America after I'd interned there. 
And it was great because back then, I mean, this will sound like a foreign world to people today. There was no internet. There were no blogs. There was none of this. And really, if you want to be in sports journalism, you would basically start by working the desk at a local paper and cover high school football and hope for an opportunity to do some things. And I just had this great opportunity in Baseball America where I was a college baseball guy and doing prospect stuff. I got to go to the Olympics at a young age and all this great stuff. But, but I, and I love the college beat. And I talked to Ron Polk and Skip Bertman when I was at Georgia. I'm not claiming they remembered me, but at least I kind of knew them. You know, Steve Weber was always great to me at Georgia. So the second year I'm covering the College World Series, Georgia wins it. And what was cool was it was all it was not all guys, but a lot of guys I'd gone to college with because I covered the team in 88 and I graduated in December 88. There were five guys who were on the 87 team on the 90 team and a bunch of guys like Dave Fleming um, who were freshmen in 88 when Georgia was kind of rebuilding after the a bunch of guys got drafted off the 87 team. And it was, it was just crazy. Like, I remember, I don't think I've ever been so tense watching a game as watching. I mean, I wasn't like wearing red and black face paint or anything like that. I was keeping it professional. <laughs> but back then at Rosenblatt, this is before they had the press box that they built. It was an old ramshackle press box up on top. And you could go outside and then go up on top of the press box and watch on the roof. And I watched most of that game on the roof because I just wanted to watch alone. I was just like, and it was a two to one game. It was like really tense. And Oklahoma State was threatening every inning, like in the last four or five innings. So back then, CBS did the national championship game. It was oh yeah, it, it was, was awesome. It wasn't a best of three series; it was a single game, right? The way they had it, usually it, on, it was usually on a Sunday, right? Saturday afternoon, usually Saturday afternoon. Saturday afternoon, yeah, yeah. And so, because CBS had exclusive rights to interview people right after the game, you would go down and wait behind home plate to go on the field interview players after the game. And like, if CBS wanted a guy, you know, CBS got their guy. And then after CBS was done, we would all go repair. To to the media room and, and they have a press conference with players, but you, you, your initial reaction was you had to go out on the field. And so I remember going out on the field after they won, I think it was a called strike three. I know Dave Fleming was on the mound pitcher. Georgia only used three pitchers whole series. It was unbelievable. And going out in the field. And I, I'm just thinking, I can't believe these guys. I mean, it was just so, I mean, these are guys I know that they want. And I'm, I'm excited because it's Georgia, but I'm also excited. These are a bunch of guys. I knew I had classes with some of these guys. Right. And um, I get a somebody just bear hugs me and I'm just like, whoa. And it was coach's wife, Steve Weber, Pam Weber. And she's just like, I can't believe this. I can't believe this. And I'm thinking, man, I hope this is not on TV. Like Baseball America sees coach's wife hugging me. Like they're going <laughs> to give me like mercifully. But like I remember like talking and like she was and I was like, I know I can't believe these guys won. And it was cool. I still talk to some of those guys today about it. And, and I, I don't know if you knew Steve Weber at all. Very good coach not a real big media guy. Like media was not his thing. He wasn't like bad. He just, that was not, he, he was a good, very good coach. That was his emphasis. Although he was great to me. Like the first years on the beat, I was literally calling him to preview every series. And after a while, I was like, a couple of he's like, Jim, I gotta be honest. Like I don't have detailed scouting reports on this team. We're playing on a Wednesday, but I think he appreciated my enthusiasm and how much coverage. And, but like Steve was not like, like we got along, but like Steve was never like a big media guy. And I remember at the press conference, Somebody asked him if he was excited and he just deadpan was like, can't you tell that it was just him? He was, he wasn't like a real emotional guy, but I remember, I guess CNN was having him on later that afternoon. So he, he was, he, when I went up to the press box to write my story, he was waiting with the, the baseball SID at the point, at that point. And I remember Steve, like big grin face, like Jim, come on, we got to sit down and just talk about this. Like it, he was, he was pretty pumped too. And it was, it was really, really cool. Like I said, I mean, that, that still, you can just tell by what I'm talking about it. I think that will be probably very tough as a memory to top in my career, like of, of just media. Like, I, I think that one will be really tough to top. 
Yeah. So could you speak a little bit too about what the, what it's the difference is for say when you're covering the dogs for the red and black and you're going to class with guys and you're seeing guys around campus, how that's a, a different environment or a different experience than say, if you're covering a team for baseball America or for MLB.com and, and you have no emotional connection to it. You have no connection from a personal perspective to anybody that you're covering those type things. Yeah, I mean that, that that is a big difference. I mean, I mean, I always was able to separate, and then I mean, they obviously were doing well when I was there. I wasn't, you know, talking guys up just because I they were friends of mine, or I was friendly with them, or that or I'd gone to a, like a party or or some that type of thing. But it is different because you know those guys a lot a lot better. I mean, now, I mean, I'm 52. Like, I can't imagine. Like, I mean, I went to a couple parties with Georgia baseball players, you know, back in the day. I can't imagine you know, going to a party with the Vanderbilt Commodores, like I'd be the old guy in the corner standing by himself. It would be weird. And even, I mean, I mean, most of the guys I cover, I'd say almost all of them are prospects. I mean, I don't, I, I don't really do big league stuff. So, I mean, I might get guys who are close to the big leagues or have had a cup of coffee, but like I'm mostly doing, you know, draft prospects, college guys, minor leaguers. And most of those guys aren't too jaded. Like you don't run into anybody who's like, Hey, you know, I'm a big leaguer. I don't want to talk that type of thing. So those guys are still pretty, like it's very easy to to talk to them. I mean, I'm not like we go out and have dinner, or, you know, have some beers at a keg or anything like that. But yeah, it, it is different, and that, that's why again, like I was saying, like I don't, I think 1990 will just be tough to top because like I just remember, you know, and if you look back, that team had one big leaguer on it. It was Dave Fleming, who won 17 games as rookie, got hurt, and they had nobody else. I don't even know if anybody else got to AAA. They had some guys who were high drafts out of high school, um, Ray Suplee, J.R. Showalter, um, you know, Stan Payne, who started the national championship game. Who and he was a freshman was like a second round pick back then. It was the high school guys didn't sign all the time out of high school. I think it was a second round pick by Dodgers out of high school, but he got hurt as a sophomore. And so it was more just like a really good college team that got hot like at the right time. And you know, like I said, I mean they had they used three pitchers the whole time. You know Fleming, who you know shut out. I, I could still remember Fleming shut out Mississippi State, who he shut out during the regular season in the opener. Um, then Mike Rebin, who who just died unfortunately last year. Um, you know, one of the great heroes of Georgia baseball, Mike Reben was p- pitching against Mike Messina in game, in game. So you're getting more than you bit off. But everybody will tell you, if you start talking 1990 Georgia with me, you're going to get these stories. But he's <laughs> facing Stanford, it. number one team in the country. You know, they've got Jeffrey Hammonds. They've got David McCarty. They've got Mike Messina. They've got Stan Spencer. All those guys were first round picks. I'm probably forgetting a couple. The team was loaded. Best team in the country. In five innings, against Bucina, we maybe had one hit and he'd struck out 12. I mean, he was just crushing us. And we were down like one nothing or 2 nothing. You know, Reben was pitching while keeping us in the game. But it was just – we were getting crushed. And I don't know what happened. Sixth inning, we scored 12 runs. We had like 10 or 11 hits in a row. I remember sitting next to Jeff Hundley, who I think still works at UGA for Georgia Bulldog Magazine. I don't know if he still does, but he did for a long time. We're next to press box, and we're just sitting there going like, damn. Like like a fifth guy gets hit in a row, sixth guy, seventh guy. And it may have been broken, but Georgia tied a record for runs in an inning. It was unbelievable. So we crushed them. So the next game, we, we play Stanford, comes out of loser's bracket to play us. If we win, we're in the finals. And we had one bad inning the whole tournament. And guy, I think Fleming might have walked a guy. Guy got on, then guy bunted, and he slipped coming off the mound. So the guy beat it out. And they wound up scoring three runs and beat us like three to one. So then it's rematch, Musina against Mike Reben again. And, you know, the general atmosphere is like, it's not going to happen again. And Reben just went out and beat him like five, one complete game, second complete game victory. And I always tell people, and I would talk to Mike, I had huge admiration. He never pitched again. He had a wife, he had a kid. He might've had a second kid on the way. He was married, 
And he, he had offers. He could have played pro ball, but he felt like, you know, the, I mean, he wasn't like a top, top guy. The odds of him making it to the big leagues were slim and he had a family and he needed to take care of them. And he wound up, you know, going into computer software um, and turned down the opportunity. So like, literally, I thought about this a lot last year when Mucina went in the hall of fame, literally the last two games he pitched, he beat Mike Mucina head to head twice. Unbelievable. And then we went to the championship game and, and won two to one. So, but it's like, yeah, it's, Knowing those guys, and I didn't know Mike. It's funny. I talked to Mike, obviously, at the College World Series when I was covering it, and we got to know each other just kind of electronically on Twitter and email over the years. I never talked to him. I, I think he was a JUCO transfer, so I think he came in in 89 after I was gone and was a senior in 90. But, like, uh, like again, you can hear it in my voice. I, I, will ne- I, I cannot imagine what would, it would have to be like my son would have to be, like, winning a World Series for somebody or something to top that. Cause it was just like, I knew all those guys and, you know, I was so happy for Steve Weber and, and the coaches and, you know, the, the, the guy who recruited most of that team was Howard McCann, who, who's Brian and Brad McCann's dad who had left to go to Marshall. And I always kind of wished he had gotten a chance to, to be there for it because he, he really helped build that team too. Yeah. That's, it will be very hard to top that. And it's like nothing. It's, it's not the same. Maybe I've covered a lot of exciting events, but it's not the same, not having that personal connection to that many guys. Yeah, that's really cool. And yeah, I'm I'm an Orioles fan. So when you talk about that Stanford team, immediately what I think of is Jeffrey Hammonds and Moose because they both end up in the Orioles organization yeah. as high picks. And obviously Moose goes on and has the career he had. Um, so it makes that story even cooler when you know the quality of guys they beat to get that title. So uh, that's that's really cool. Well, why don't, why don't we stay on the topic of Georgia baseball and kind of talk sure. about the year it looked like they were trending to have after a strong year last year and kind of where things could have gone for them. Uh, What were your thoughts based on what you'd seen out of that roster and what they had done in the young season? I I think they had a really good chance to go to Omaha. I was really looking forward to that Florida series. I know they lost, I think, Georgia Southern a couple times on the Tuesday and Wednesday right before the season ended. But I was looking forward to Florida, I think, was undefeated. Florida might have lost one of those midweek games too. Florida was undefeated coming into that week. And I was looking forward to that series with Georgia. I think was going down to Gainesville, but I think they they definitely had a College World Series caliber team. I think last year's team was probably a little bit better, had a little bit deeper lineup, but I, I think this team was certainly capable. I mean, you have to like your chances. I think in any kind of, I mean, you could have said this last year too, but any kind of postseason series with Emerson Hancock and Cole Wilcox, I think are both going to be first round picks. You know, I think Hancock, in terms of how he started this year. Was good. I mean, last year I thought he was the best pitcher in the country until he got shut down with a minor injury for a couple of weeks. First ten weeks of the season, I think Emerson Hancock was the best college pitcher in the country. I don't think he was that sharp. You're telling the scouts they kind of felt like he was using the early season games to kind of get geared up for SEC play, almost kind of like a spring training, mm-hmm. like that he was more working on stuff rather than just trying to go out and shut guys down. You know, like when you're playing Massachusetts Lowell or or whoever. I think Wilcox was looking like he had taken a step forward, like he was throwing more strikes, he had better command of his stuff this year. So he was better. CJ Smith, Ryan Webb, you know, Cannon. I mean, they had they had a very deep pitching staff. Um, and I, I think they still had the nucleus again of another good defensive team. You know, the offense was maybe gonna be the question a little bit, but no, I mean I think they had a chance to go to Omaha. They would would have had a very strong chance to go to Omaha. Can you talk a little bit about the effect? being at the University of Georgia and writing for the Red and Black and following that 87 team had on kind of, I guess, the launching board for your career, the opportunities it presented with Baseball America and kind of set you on the path that you've been on? Yeah, no, I mean, 100%. I mean, I I tell people all the time, I mean, I have a lot of appreciation for the Red and Black and the Grady School. 
Um, I, I just finished a three-year term on the on the Grady School alumni board. I was thrilled they asked me. You find out all the cool things. It was amazing being back and looking at how the technology's changed in the Grady building and, and the opportunities and, you know, like virtual ad agencies and people are designing apps. And it's like, you know, just unbelievable work students are doing there. But no, I'd, I wouldn't be where I was if it wasn't for the red and black. I and mean, I had the opportunity to go out and cover the team on a daily basis. And it just, I mean, that's, that's really where I, like I knew right then, like that's what I wanted to do. And I'd always been a baseball fan more than anything else. And it was, it, 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 I mean, it directly led to my opportunities with Baseball America because again, this sounds like it's dark ages. Back then there was no internet. So if you wanted to find out where your team was ranked, you literally had to call Baseball America on the phone and get them on the phone and ask them, Hey, where's Georgia rank? Can you read me off top 25? Like that's how it was. And so I got to know the guys at Baseball America just a little bit. They had a very small staff. I think I was, so anyway, I, I got Baseball America at the time. Like it was, they were about in their fifth year of existence, very small staff. And they'd done a story on Loquist and they'd done a story on Carpenter. And I think the Athens Papers writer did a story on one of them and the Atlanta Papers writer. It was Charles Odom with the Athens Paper, Thomas O'Toole with the Atlanta Journal Constitution did the other story. And I remember, and I was not, I was, I've never been a cocky, hey, you know, I'm a big deal type of guy. But I remember talking to him one week and they just run the second story. And I said, hey, how do you guys pick who writes these stories for, you know, these sidebars in your college section? And they're like, you know, usually the local writers, you know, blah, 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 compare. And I said, you know, just if you know, if you need anything else, like I'm not knocking those guys or good guys, but they don't come to any of the game. They're not at any of the games. Like when you assign them the story, they're coming out to do the story. Like I'm there every day. Like I've, good sense of players. If you need anything else, let me know. And that was that. You know, another thing that was weird, quick interlude. I remember when they got on draft day, this is again, how long ago it was when people didn't really have cell phones. The car, I got the Cardinals scouting director to call me back after they drafted Chris Carpenter. And he asked me if I had a number where they could reach Chris cause they couldn't reach him. Um, and I did, I think I put them in touch. It was just like such a different, like now you'd have the guy sell, you'd be texting him, but like they, right. like it was cool. Fred McAllister called me back, like this guy, the student newspaper, Red and Black, and then I'm helping him. But so anyway, that summer, I'm you know, reading Baseball America before the fall started. Baseball America offered a one-year internship, and I looked into it. It wasn't a good internship, but I mean, it was a lot of office work. They were they were so short staffed. They needed office work done. I was like, ah, I'm not gonna do that for a year and put my education on hold for you. Because at that point, I need I was a year and a quarter away from graduating. I was like, I, I just can't see doing that. But when I had that conversation with them about you know, how do you pick your writers, they actually had me write a story the next spring on how Georgia was rebuilding his pitching staff now that Derek Lilquist and Chris Carpenter were gone. And so I did that. I was like incredible thrilled to have my name in print. My name in print. That's actually Gordon Beckham still uses that as his walk of music. It's not why I picked it as my ringtone. But anyway, <laughs> um, I did that. So it was like amazing thrill to me. But then they had an internship that summer to work on. They were doing a book on the first 25 years of the draft, a history book. And they needed literally my, my first, they, they came to me and said, you know, we think you'd be good fit for this. And I, and I loved it. And I, like my first test, I literally input the name, position, and school of every player drafted. And, ba- and people don't realize, back in the day, there used to be four drafts per year, not one. You had different phase, you had January draft, June draft, regular phase, second So I did that, and I got to write some stories. Like, it was cool. Like, we had an Appy League team. Actually, the guy who owned Baseball America owned the, the Appalachian League team in Burlington, which is not that far away. So, like, Steve Avery was a first-round pick, like, number three overall pick. I went to a story on him. Mark Lewis, who never did a whole lot in the big leagues, number two overall pick. He was at Burlington. Like I, I was, I was writing for the magazine. I was working on this draft book. Absolutely loved it. And they hired me before I left. They hired me, so I knew after I finished my last quarter, I'd be going back there. But like that was, 
that was the red and black. If I hadn't been covering Georgia baseball and kind of build up that dialogue, you know, I mean, I'd say the early days of Baseball America weren't that much removed. I mean, it was bigger, but somewhat similar to working on a school paper where, you know, you don't have this giant staff. Everybody's doing everything. You're signing photos. You're assigning. I was sports editor, employer, signing stories, you know, planning stuff. And it was great because, you know, like I said earlier, back then, like, most guys my age coming out of college, you go work on the local paper and you might get to write a high school football story, maybe a feature every once in a while and edit on the desk. I was off covering the college world series and writing about the draft. And, you know, I went to the 92 Olympics when I was 24 years old, running around there, like getting to do all this stuff. Like now, you know, it's a lot different. You can, even if you don't write for your school paper, you could blog and show people what you could do. Or if you want to do, you know, radio or TV, you know, you can post clips, you know, you, you can do those sorts of things. But back then, you didn't have that opportunity. So I, I'm just immensely grateful. And, you know, like I said earlier, even in the 87 College World Series, you know, Harry Montevideo, who was the GM of the Red Black back then, talked to Claude Felton, who's still in the sports information office. Right, right. right. And and they worked it out. So, I mean, obviously the Georgia Athletic Department's doing pretty well financially, but they worked it out. So I got to go go out to Omaha with the team in 87. I mean, it was they, they gave me great opportunities. And also, like, I remember, too, like, I, I just love covering that 87 team. And I was I I went down to Georgia Southern for a couple midweek games. I went down to Florida State, like for a great three game series, um, and all this stuff. And um, I, or maybe it was midweek. But in any case, my teachers were very understanding too. Like I'd say, hey, I might go down to Statesboro, miss Tuesday, Wednesday, you know. And my teachers were all very understanding. Every, you know, everybody, I mean, obviously, I still had to get my work done, but nobody was like, no, you need to be in class. Everybody was like, no, go ahead. Like the, you know, it's a good opportunity. I think you could tell I probably was going to go into that field anyway. And my teachers were very supportive of, yeah, you know, go ahead. You know, if you're if you miss a couple of days of class this week, cause you're going to Florida state to cover the series, go ahead. So yeah, that, that stuff, it was really cool. I mean, it's, I, I could not be more thankful to the red and black and to the university of Georgia because I mean, there were relationships again. It's not like I think Ron Polk or Skip Bergman necessarily knew who I was. At, when I was at the student paper at Georgia, but I talked to those guys. Like, it's funny. I remember Mark Newman for many years ran the Yankees minor league system. He was the old Dominion coach when I, when I was, and they played Georgia every year because he and Steve Weber played together at Southern Illinois and were in each other's weddings. And you know, like that was kind of an, an intro when I was talking to Mark when he was running the Yankees system was reliving some of those memories. And it, like, I met a lot of people. My, my favorite memory, and this helped me a lot of baseball America. So in 87, we had the two first round picks. And back then, like I said, the press box held like four people. And I'd watch a lot of games from the stands. There weren't many people there. And I was at a game. I was with a friend of mine because I was talking to somebody. And a guy, after a couple of days, he's like, hey, you know, and you seem to know a lot about the team. You, you cover the team. You know, how do you know so much about the baseball team? And I explained who I was. And it was Terry Ryan, who at that point was the scouting director of the Twins and later became longtime general manager of the Twins. So he was asking me about, you know, what I knew about guys. I mean, not anything or a shattering, but like, just, you know, what are you thinking? You know, what have you seen you know, there? And I still remember the first thing he said to me, he's like, you're left-handed, aren't you? And I'm like, how'd you know that? And he's like, your hat's crooked. He's like, left-handers usually put their hats on crooked. Like, I guess is one of these things you pick up for many years as a scout. And he, and he was right. I am left-handed. But um, so when we were talking and he said, we were, we were going to play, it might've been old dominion. We were playing a team coming up in midweek game. And it might've been old dominion. And they had two prospects. One was a guy named Wiley Lee. who was an athletic middle infielder. And they had a guy named Todd Azar who like hit like 470, but he wasn't really athletic. And Terry's like, I don't really want to stick around just for those two guys. They're like, you're always, you know, scout director, you want to be in a million places at once. He's like, you have access to a stopwatch. 
and I did because I worked at, I don't know if it's still, they had a Bennigan's in, in Athens and I worked there as a waiter to make extra money and they had a stopwatch lunch. Like your lunch is ready in 15 minutes or, or it's free. And so I had my Bennigan stopwatch. So he trained me a little bit on his stopwatch. He's like, can you just get me some home to first times on those two guys, just general impressions. And that way, like if they were unbelievable, he'd come back. But he's like, I just, you'd save me two days from having to stay there and watch him. So I did that for him. And um, I remember he called, it was middle of basketball. Austin P had like, I can't remember who they beat. They legendary upset Austin P in the NCAA basketball tournament. He called right at the end of that game while I was watching that game. And so I was digging out my notebook with the home to first times for those guys. But because of that, Terry was great guy, but very much kind of like Steve Weber, but even more so Terry back then felt like scouting director's job is not to talk to the media. It's just to scout. But Terry was always great to me. He would always call me back like a baseball America if I needed something because of that. Like, and, and, and like, I, and that's just a cool memory too. I wouldn't be where I was today. I would not have launched my career. I mean, who knows what I'd be doing. I, I was actually having that conversation with my daughter the other day that if I hadn't gotten that baseball America internship, like, I don't know what else I would have done that summer. And then I would have had a quarter and I would have graduated. So like, where would I have gone? I mean, I guess I would have figured something out, but no, it's, I, I'm eternally thankful to Red and Black for giving me the opportunity and kind of let me run with the baseball beat and send me to Omaha. And I mean, they were great in school and, you know, I mean, sports formation department, athletic department, my teachers, I mean, everybody, uh, you know, was really, you know, kind of made it a great experience for me. Well, I mean, I can hear it in your voice from just listening to you talk about it. You obviously have an affinity for amateur baseball and that level of baseball. Can you tell us how that has changed with the advent of technology and those type of things since when you started to present day? It's totally different. I mean, when I started, I don't even think that many people had cell phones, like late 80s, early 90s. And, I, like, and if they did, they didn't, I mean, it was like probably like a dollar a minute. Like you, you didn't, I remember I called Skip Berman once on his car phone. I was trying to reach him. His secretary gave me his number. And Skip, who I got along with, I don't think was real pleased. I was running up his minutes on his car phone. When I started, I mean, there was no internet. So like now if I hear about a guy, I can Google him. Like, oh, there's some guy at some you know, Clark Central High School. Like I can figure out who it is. Back then it'd be like, oh, I think his name might be this. And you're trying to piece it together. And like I can't look up his stats or his height and weight or you know, even junior college now, I can get pretty detailed junior college stats in the country. So, I mean, just from a communication information standpoint, I mean, we were fortunate at Baseball America. We had an 800 number to call in order subscriptions that we would give out to people in baseball. You give that out to scouts. They call you back an 800 number from the road because if, you, if they were on the road, you didn't know where they were staying. You'd have to leave a message at the dude's house and hope he called you when he got out. It was like totally different. So, so from that point, it's like a thousand times easier to communicate. And then in terms of the writing aspect of it, like when I started Baseball America, we came out every two weeks. They're monthly now, but we came out every two weeks and there was no internet. So like if we, we published on a Thursday and something major happened on a Friday, it's like, yeah, I'll get to that in a few days. Like, you know, take the weekend off. We'll, we'll come back and get to that next week. Now, not only do you have to have a story when things happen, you got to tweet about it as soon as it happens. Like, like it, now everybody wants their stuff instant. It's not, I'll wait two weeks to get my Baseball America or I'll get my morning paper. It's like, I want it now like at any time. So it's, it's 24 seven. And then from the, the scouting aspect of it, like it's totally different. I mean, even I'd say compared to 10 years ago, I mean, like, look, you, you'd stop watch guys home to first. Even when I started guys had radar guns, you know, measuring velocity, but now we're talking about, you know, spin rates and spin axes and extension in the guy's delivery and exit velocities and launch angles 
and it's 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 totally different. I mean, we still don't have access to like all the data that a team would, but guys will tell you like, hey, this guy's got good spin rates. That's why the fastball plays up, or the spin rates on his curveball are exceptional. So we'll get it kind of anecdotally, but that's definitely you. You certainly are aware of that stuff now, and I, and I think it's changed the notion too. Where I think. I mean, it's to some extent true. Like you can't necessarily teach guys to run faster. Like, like there are some physical limitations, but I do think now there's a greater belief that you can get more out of a player that you might be able to take his performance to higher levels that you can get him to throw harder or impart more spin on the ball, or you can, I mean, it's more complicated than that, like, you know, maybe alter a guy's launch angle and he'll hit for more power. So it's, it's, it's totally different. I mean, you like that stuff really wasn't being talked about, you know, 10 years ago. I remember at the beginning of the decade, South Carolina won back-to-back national titles and one of their best players was uh, Michael Roth, this pitcher who uh, en route to their first title, he wound up pitching like they were short. They had kind of a loser's bracket and he wound up having to pitch like start against Clemson in a, like a limited do or die game. And he pitched really well. And then they won the national title and they came back and won the national title again. And then they almost came back and won the national title third year. Arizona beat him in the finals. Michael Roth is one of the best pitchers in college World series history. And he pitched real briefly in the big leagues. We threw like 86, 88. And I remember one of the first places I saw data on extension, which is how far, I mean, I know you know this, how far out in front of the mound you're releasing the ball so like even though the rubber is 60 feet six inches away you get extension you might be releasing you're tall you might be releasing the from like 50 feet away which is totally different if you release from 55 feet away the perceived velocity is a lot different and so anyway in the arizona fall league at one of the parks they had track man and they and so at that park you would get like exit velocities and and extension things like that and um michael roth of all the guys they measured and it was a, like an incomplete sample had the best extension in there's a fall league. I remember thinking, oh, well, that kind of explains why this guy throws 86, 88 and guys don't hit him. But, um, but yeah, now that stuff's all, you know, you're talking about, you know, now it used to be, I mean, this oversized, like, you talk about the guy's fastball, he throws 94. Now it's like, okay, how much depth does he have on it? What's the spin? What's the spin axis? Like, there's all these factors that go into it. Um, so that, that part is totally different. So it's fortuitous that we've, we're having you on today when we are because we're just coming off of the NFL draft this past weekend. And I've, I've always been curious about drafts in general, not just baseball or, or football or basketball, but just from a process perspective and a logistical perspective, it seems to me to be a heavy weight to move to prognosticate what these guys are going to become in all the sports, right? But I don't know if there's a more difficult one than baseball, where there's a prevalence of taking high school talent. Can you talk a little bit about the difference between prognosticating a kid who's got three to four years in college against upper level talent versus a kid that you're projecting from high school based on what you see with measurables and kind of what the mechanics and science of that are? It is. I think it is more difficult than the other sports. Um, you know, hockey would probably be the most comparable, but I think the biggest difference there is that you don't have the equivalence of injuries to pitchers where you, you, you kind of have this double-edged sword where you got to have pitching. You never have enough pitching. You know, it's cheaper to acquire pitchers in the draft than is to trade for them or pay them as free agents. But at the same time, like a lot of pitchers are going to get hurt. So like it's risky. So I think it's, it's tough. And, and, and what makes it tough is you're projecting further in the future, even for the college guys, you're almost never talking about a college guy going from the draft straight to the big leagues. You're still projecting 
but that college guy's going to be two or three years down the road. And I think the difficulty of hitting a baseball is so difficult compared to any of the skills in the other sports that even a guy, there are a lot of guys who hit in college who don't hit in the minors or guys who hit in the minors that then don't hit in the major league level. So it is project. It, it is tough. You know, it's like the way we do it. I always tell people like, I'm not a scout. I'm a reporter. I think I have a lot of good connections with scouts and I talk to a ton of scouts and yeah, I can, look at video and video is not the same as being there in person, but I can look at video and see some things with a swing or a guy's mechanics. Like I'm not claiming I can break it down. Like a guy does it, you know, for a living, but like I can see some of that stuff, but I'm basically for me reporting on what scouts are telling me. Like for instance, we just put our top 150 prospect list up at, at MLB.com. It had been hundred. We'd done it in the fall or in the winter. And then we expanded it to 150. And so to do that, like Jonathan Mayo and I split the draft in half. I have half the country. He has half the country. And I talked to, I think it was 24, 25 area scouts and cross checkers. And then we also got feedback from a bunch of people too, after we kind of put the list in order. And most of those calls last hour, two hours. So we talked about a lot of players. When I was at Baseball America and we did a 500, which they still do, we would also do these state lists where we would list roughly how many players would get drafted out of the state typically. So if I did Georgia, we wouldn't necessarily have all the guys on the top 500, but I might rank the top 50 players in Georgia and we'd only write up the guys who are on the top 500. So we'd go even deeper and I would start back then. I didn't have half the country cause that would be a trillion players, but I had like a third of the country and I would start every year by talking to probably 50 or so college and junior college, either recruiting coordinators or head coaches. I, I used to talk to Scott Strickland all the time when he was at Kent State at Ohio. He had a better program than Ohio State did at the time. He, he knew where the guys were in the state. They, they were a really good team uh, year in, year out. Um, so I, I would start to them with them and then go from them and then talk to the scouts. Well, I mean, part of it is you still at the end of the day, it's not like people are saying, here's my list. And I don't approach it that way. Hey, give me your list. What order you have them in? Like you're getting all this information. Then you have to line them up. And like, I'll sit there and talk, like, where would you take this guy? Like kind of get people like where they would fit, but you still have to line them up and okay, you got this high school or this high school shortstop who might not stay there, who can really hit and whatever. And here's this college pitcher whose stuff's kind of average, but he throws a lot of strikes. And here's this six foot six, 180 pound high school arm who's not there yet, but he could be pretty good. And then, you know, here's this college hitter who's maybe not an athlete, but he hit 20 home runs in the SEC. And so you kind of, I think, over the years get a feel for, okay, I like this type of player versus that type of player. But I mean, that's one of the things, like, after 30 years, I still enjoy my job because it, I find it very interesting finding out about the next crop of players and trying to line them up in an order and – this is a weird year with the coronavirus. We won't change. We usually change the order. We won't change the order of our top 150 guys because nothing is going on. We'll expand the list to 200, but usually I'd be getting back on the phone, making those two dozen calls all over again, checking in. Okay. You know, Hey, is Cole Wilcox's command. Is, is it continuing to improve? Is Hancock's stuff ramped back up? Is he sharp? Like, you know, that type of stuff. And this year it's just like, well, we'll just expand the list because we don't have to make the calls again because no, nobody's playing. 
Yeah, I'm glad you bring that up. This is kind of the last question I have for. I think it, it kind of puts a bow on this. But with all the coronavirus stuff, and you know, you spoke about the the 150 prospect list. Could you speak a little bit about you know the 2020 MLB draft, what that is going to look like now with everything going on, and how because that's shifted and changed, how that's going to affect UGA's draft eligible guys or fringe guys, whether that's Emerson Hancock, Cole Wilcox, Ryan Webb. Cam Shepard, Tucker Bradley on the club now. And then one that I'd like you to speak to as well is Corey Collins, who's number one guy in the class for UGA, big time backstop out of Georgia, uh, projectable in the pros. Uh, could you just kind of speak about where all that's going to go based on what's happening? Yeah. You know, first in general, there's still some uncertainty. I mean, the draft can be anywhere from June 10th to July 20th. It sounds more and more like it's probably going to be closer to June 10th. I, I think we're probably going to get June 10th. Like it, like it was scheduled. It won't be in Omaha. It, has to be at least five. MLB, the owners did not want to have a draft. Um, the union would not allow them to not have a draft, but said figuratively, not literally, you can do whatever else you want. So it's going to have to be at least five rounds. It might be 10. I'll believe that if I see it. I, I'm thinking it's going to be five, um, which is unfortunate. They've, they've changed the rules. So anybody who's not drafted, you can sign, but you can only get $20,000, which is – I mean, there were 395 players after the fifth round last year who got six-figure bonuses, and, and these guys aren't going out and buying cars. They're using that money to pay off college loans. They're using that to live off of food, training when they're in the minors, making like 1200 a month for five months out of the year. Like That money matters to those guys, and it's really unfortunate. They're, they're deferring almost all the bonus payments this year. Yeah, it's going to be – from that landscape, it's going to be weird. With the Georgia guys, and Hancock and Wilcox – the, the first five rounds, for the most part, will be, if it's a five-round draft, like the first five rounds would have been in a normal draft. You just won't have rounds six through 40. Anderson Hancock, to me, is still going to go in the first four or five picks, still going to get paid. Biggest difference for him is he can only get 100000 of his bonus up front. Like He's going to get it deferred over the next two years. But he'll still get you know, he'll still go pretty good. You know, Cole Wilcox, you can argue that if he – had continued to be as sharp as he was. I mean, he, uh, he had good stuff last year, but he didn't all harness as well as he was harnessing it this year. If he continued to harness it and gotten better, maybe he goes higher in the draft if he had more time to build that case, um, which he, he only got, what, four weeks. Um, that said, I still think he goes in the first round. Like, again, I think he'll go where he would have gone. Like, he was trending up, but not long enough to make a drastic move. I think he still goes in the 20s somewhere. Um, you know, Ryan Webb. I think probably goes like we have him as, you know, I think fourth round pick or so, we, you know, third, fifth, somewhere in there. You know, I think most people see him as reliever. He has enough pitches to start. He doesn't have a track record of necessarily the durability to start, but it's one of those things like, it's not what, what the consensus thinks. It's what usually a drafted by the team that likes you best. So I, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody out there who takes him maybe even in the third round is like, we might be able to make this guy a starter and they try that. So I think he still gets picked. You know, as for the rest of them, I mean, you know, Shepard's interesting because he's already a senior, theoretically could come back. You know, I don't know how schools are going to handle that individually, but, you know, he has his eligibility. He could come back for another year. I mean, Cam's not going to go in the first five rounds, and I think he's going to get treated like a senior sign would. I, I mean, if you really liked him, maybe you'd give him the full 20. Honestly, he probably, if he wants to play pro ball from a practical standpoint, he probably needs to sign because he's going to be 23 next year. And 23-year-old college players are not valued by the industry. The minor leagues are, you know, we all could get reduced as early as this summer. Minor leagues are in desperate straits. There are going to be fewer teams next year. So if Cam Shepard wants to play pro ball, he probably has to sign this year. You know, who, who's our guy? You Brad? Was it Brad? 
Yeah, Tucker Bradley, I just think is interesting because, you know, two-way guy, can can swing it a little bit, comes in and is he a red uh, throws in relief. Pretty sure he's a redshirt junior. I think that's right. So he's kind of in the same boat where he's 22. So even though he theoretically would have two years of eligibility, he is an interesting guy. Like, to me, those guys are attractive to teams because they kind of have to sign for 20 or less. Like, it's kind of like sign now or you probably, you might not get the chance. So they, they could lose those guys. We'll see. I, I do think with – the normal, the college junior who would have been that guy who got the hundred thousand dollar bonus or or six figure bonus, the three hundred like three hundred ninety five guys, most of them were college juniors. It, it stinks because those guys need that money, like I said, to pay off college loans to to, to live on when they're making nothing nothing in the minors. But I think if for, for those guys, they're going to have to like if they went to college and their primary goal was I want to play pro ball after college, you might have to sign for twenty this year because. Next year, the draft's already cut down 20 rounds, could get down, cut down further. You're already going to have a full draft class that would have been from next year added to guys this year who don't sign. Also possibly adding freshmen who, because juniors are coming back to some of these colleges, don't have scholarships available to them that they thought they were going to get. They could go junior. Next year's draft is going to be just clogged up with a lot of players who should have been moved out of the system or had been freshmen and not eligible. And so if you go back next year, a, you're going to be 22 if you're a, a repeat junior, and that's not going to be desirable. And it won't work out like this. I think some guys will sign, but if everybody who would have gone say around six to 20 and gotten six figure bonuses goes back to school, and then you have all the guys who would have gotten six figure bonuses around six to 20 next year, half of them can't go around six to 20. There's not enough room. The 22 year old guys are not going to do well compared to the 21 year old guys. So I think in general, I think more of those guys will sign than they will. You know, Collins is going to be interesting because he's one of the better hitters in the in the high school class. I think as a kid, you know, and when you have that as a catcher, it's an interesting dilemma. But he's got the tools to catch. Didn't catch a lot this spring because he hurt his arm. I didn't realize at the time. I, I was at the PDP league, which is this developmental league MLB ran with USA Baseball last summer. Hurt his elbow, I think, in the first game at that last year when I was at. Missed the rest of the summer. I think he had like nerve transmission. It wasn't Tommy John, but nerve transmission. So his arm is fine now. And he caught some, but I think they were easing him back into it. It wasn't just like, hey, you're going to catch every day to, to ease his arm. So the tough part with him is the most valuable time to scout a guy, a high school player, is during the summer because it's a little different in Georgia. But in a lot of places, you aren't going to face any pro caliber pitching as a high school senior. I want to see you against the best of the best. And that's where you form your impressions. And not only – you didn't get to see Corey Collins do that. You didn't – like if you're trying to figure out can he catch – and I, I think he can, but like, how good of a catcher is he? Well, we didn't see him last summer, and I barely saw him this spring, so that's tough. You have the whole dilemma: do you catch him, which is going to take a toll? You, know, you aren't going to have him in the lineup as much because if he's a catcher at the pro level, and it's going to take a toll on his bat. Or because this guy's one of the best hitters in high school, do I just turn the bat loose? He's athletic enough; like he doesn't have to play first. Like probably play corner outfield. Like maybe you try him at third. That might be a stretch. You don't get you, you don't have the answers to some of these questions or as much information to answer them. So I think even though like when we do our list, we're listing them based on how talented we think the players are. It's not necessarily where you're going in the draft. There, there's a guy, I think he's number 53 on our list, Tanner Witt, this really projectable high school pitcher from Texas. He's probably not gonna go high enough to sign. I'll bet the guy's first round pick after three years of Texas. So we we ranked him 53 based on that. Tanner Witt's probably not gonna go 53 in the draft. And so Corey Collins, like we think he's the, I think he's 65th on our list, something like that. So we think he's the 65th best player in the draft. He might not go that high. You know, as a complicating factor, he's got Scott Boris as an advisor. 
Um, and not that, you know, Scott's a, a very good agent and his guys get paid usually, but Scott is, is not afraid at all to tell his guys, look, you can go to college and get better and get more money. And teams know that. So, you know, in this draft, especially if it's five rounds, the bonus pools are going to be smaller. If you don't have round six to 10 for flexibility, where you could draft some seniors, sign them for $5,000 and give more money to Corey Collins. If it's a five round draft, it might, I, and I don't know what Corey Collins, you know, asking price is theoretically, it might be tough to take Corey high enough to pay him. It would certainly be tougher to do that in a five round draft than 10 round draft where every team has about a million dollars less to play with. So he's, he's a wild card. Like, I mean, I think it's one where if he goes to college um, and, and I think Georgia has another good recruit they should keep as a catcher. Fernando Gonzalez might be in the line. He's, I know they have another Georgia high school recruit and the name's escaping me. We might look up in three years and Corey Collins might be a first round pick and one of the best hitters in college baseball. If he gets to college, but like it's still since we don't know when the draft is and how many rounds it is, it's hard. Like I haven't really dug on signabilities yet, so I don't have a great sense as to how signable he is if he goes late second round, early third round. But he would be a great get for Georgia, and I think they have a chance to have a pretty good recruiting class. They have a kid. I think it's Parks Harbor is another Georgia kid, and I don't think he's going to go high enough. Like it's you know it's going to be harder to pay high school kids. I don't think, I think they're going to keep most of their guys and Corey would be the guy who would be in question the most. So then the flip side is though, what if they get a bunch of juniors come back and I can't imagine that a lot of schools are going to say, but yeah, even though they get their extra year eligibility, I don't think you get more than 11.7 scholarships. So it could be a scholarship crunch too. We'll have to see how that stuff plays out. Yeah. I've thought that's been the most interesting thing with this, right? Cause the instinct was when all this happened and they canceled spring sports, everybody said, well, just give everybody another year of eligibility. And yeah, that, that sounds great, but in practice, it creates a lot of impracticalities. Number one, you only have X amount of roster spots normally, right? And if I'm a position guy or a pitcher, I'm generally what happens is the guys go junior or senior and I get to step into their spot. If I'm an underclassman and play perfect example of that <laughs> LJ tally last year came back for senior year, had a great senior year is one of the best seniors in the country, but because he came back, Ivan Johnson transferred to Chipola junior college and Ivan Johnson wound up being a pretty good pick out of Chipola. Um, and that's exactly what you're talking about. Ivan Johnson couldn't afford to not play regularly for two years, but you're, you're, you're exactly right. Yeah. And it's the same thing for the freshmen coming in too, right? Because some of those kids have been told, well, Hey, we've got this draft eligible kid. That's going to go. He's, yeah. And, he's not coming back. Yeah, yeah. We got, we got you to come in and fill it in. Well, so what happens now if that kid says, well, I'm going to come back. Cause I want to, I want to pop the strike. It, it's just going to well, create and if I'm the more- coach, well, you, Cause you play college baseball. You know how we're, the, I'm the coach. I know my junior can play because he was playing for me. Right. They'll find room for Corey Collins, but like your other guys who are good recruits, it might be tougher depending on how many guys come back and what school you're at. It's you're, the coaches are going to want to win. They're not going to, to bench their junior or tell their junior, say, sorry, you got to go. Like, I know that guy can play. This is like a bonus. I'm getting back for a year. And I think what's unfortunate is I think you're going to find, I see a lot of freshmen, like especially sign deadline. Like if it, like the worst case scenario, but what if this draft is July 20th? That's the last day they can have the draft. Then your sign deadlines like roughly two weeks after that. That's like a week before some of these guys are going to school. All of a sudden the coach finds out he's getting five juniors back. There's going to be freshmen who are a week or two from going to school, find out, hey, all of a sudden we don't have a scholarship for you. And like, if you're that kid, I'm sure the kids, the schools will be like, hey, you want to come here as a preferred walk on? Well, you do that. But okay, now I'm paying for school 100% out of my pocket and I'm probably not going to play. So like those kids, you know, are probably going to wind up going to junior college. 
Unfortunately, if you're not going to play, you're better off going to junior college and playing, improving what you can do, and then you're draft eligible at junior college, or then you could transfer somewhere as a sophomore. If I go to a four-year school as a freshman and I don't play, the coach isn't going to have room for me the next year. He's going to need my scholarship money anyway. And then I haven't played. I don't think it would really work for freshmen. And the NCAA, it's like a they're, – well, I guess they're going to vote on this free one-year – like it used to be in college baseball, you could transfer once for free and not have – not for free, but not have to sit out a year. And they're thinking about bringing that back, like I think with all sports, like and they'll vote on that. But like if I go play somewhere as a fr- or go somewhere as a freshman and I sit and don't play, and then the coach is like, hey, Jim, we kind of need your scholarship. You know, they'll do it more so than that, but they're going to run me off. Well, I, I can't just go transfer even to – I'm not picking up school. Let's say I was at Georgia. I can't just go transfer to Mercer. Like maybe I'm from that area, but no, I can't because I'd have to sit out for a year. I mean, I could. So then I'm not going to play for two years. That's going to kill my career. I, I, so I, I'm going to junior college at that point anyway. You might as well just go as a freshman. So it's going to be really, really interesting to see how teams handle that. And like I think it's going to stink for a lot of freshmen who are going to find out in early August, all of a sudden, we don't have a scholarship for you. Yeah, that, that's just been the one thing I've thought about. And obviously, there's there's much bigger things going on and things to be worried about. But you do think about it as somebody who played or somebody who's been attached to the game. And, and you go, man, I just I feel for those kids that, you know, time doesn't stop, right? You get this one pocket and you get this one chance yeah. to do the, to do these things. And it's kind of getting taken away from them at no fault of their own. And it's just tough to see. And so I, that's one of the things I've hoped with all this is that all of it works out for all these kids involved in the best possible way. Because uh, I just don't think it's going to. Because yeah. the way they've set the draft up, I, I don't think, I mean, they're not asking for my opinion, but the way to make it as close to normal for everybody and, and coaches are also going to have an issue. You're basically going to have a double freshman class. You're going to bring in, this year, the, the the guys who are graduating this year coming in the fall, and the guys who were there came in last fall who still count as freshmen. You're basically gonna have this bloated double freshman class that's gonna gum up your roster. I mean, they'll have to run guys off, which also stinks. But like, what what would have been more normal? And again, I know it's not my money. This would have cost roughly an extra two million dollars per team. Although they're deferring all the bonuses anyway. Have a ten round draft, then you're getting another hundred college juniors or so off the books and sign a few more of the top and high school guys. And then if you want to have a 10 round draft, why not tell every team, okay, you can sign free agents. It won't be 125 like it was last year, but it was a hundred, make it a hundred. And like they, you can't even use your bonus pool savings to pay free agents, which, which stinks. But even if, okay, well, let's say we're doing that. We're stuck with that 10 rounds and you can't use your bonus pool again for those guys, make it a hundred thousand dollars, tell everybody team they can sign five or 10 of those guys. Then, then you're taking another 150 to 300 of those guys. Those you're, you're getting all the six-figure players are signing, or, or most of the vast majority of them. And then you aren't clogging up the teams with juniors who weren't expected to come back. And the freshmen, then the freshmen, you know, then it's kind of business as usual. And I, and I know, look, the MLB when they're worrying about the draft and the union was negotiating, they weren't. Nobody was thinking how are we going to affect college baseball and all these high school kids who are going to college baseball. But that would have been something that would have been a more, you know, it would have been a reduced draft, but a more normal experience. And then college baseball would be, you have kind of the normal talent pool next year, but it's, I I just, I think one of the things that's going to be really sad is there's going to be a lot of kids, you know, I mean, shoot with this economy, they're probably, you know, maybe there's kids who had like a a half or a quarter scholarship and that was, you know, and they had some other aid and that was the way they were going to get to go to college. And now with this economy, maybe they can't afford to go to college now. If they lose, you know, the, it's just terrible. 
You know, the other thing that struck me in the past five minutes, you've been talking about this kind of fleshing this out, which has been great because this has just been something that's been on my mind and I've been thinking about functionally as it's been going on. But the other piece of this for the folks listening today or the folks who don't follow college baseball or, or whatever it may be, a big proving ground for college baseball players are the summer baseball leagues. So whether that be the Cape or the Northwoods League or the Alaskan League or or wherever you may go, there are tons and tons of eyeballs on those kids during those summers. So a kid may come after his sophomore year and not be high on a board and then go to Northwoods or go to the Cape and blow it up with the wood bats or or miss a lot of bats if he's a pitcher and he's he's up the board, right? So could you talk a little bit about what that's going to do with obviously probably none of those things happening this summer as well. How does that change that landscape? Well, and it's also huge for development at the college level. You know, we're talking about freshmen who don't get a chance to play, you know, they're on a stack team and they play, you know, get like 50 at bats or 10, 15 innings. Like, I mean, and there's a ton, I mean, I've lost track. I mean, back when I covered summer leagues back in my early days, of baseball America, there were maybe seven or eight of them. And it feels like there's about 25 of them. And like, like it's a great chance to go play. Like if you didn't get enough innings or at bats, so you like it even helps you from a developmental standpoint at your college. Yeah, it's that that's the crazy. It's it's, it's funny because I mean, look, we're all obviously focused on health first right now. We're trying to figure out when are we going to get back to our normal lives. And then for for those of us involved in baseball, like it's like okay, twenty twenty draft. There's going to be a lot of differences this year. But you know, you, you like I said before, you scout a lot of your high school guys during the summer. You have all these summer leagues. You got looks at these guys last summer. Nobody's talking about, I mean, I've talked about a few scouts. Nobody's talking about 2021 right now because the Cape Cod League's already closed. As of now, I think the other summer leagues have not shut down. I I have a hard time really believing they're going to play, like host families, even if it's more regional and you're getting guys more locally. Like, like guys haven't played in three months. Like, well, they're going to be in varying conditions. How many innings are pitchers going to be ready to go at the start? Like, yep. personally, just see how you're going to do summer leagues this year. High school showcases, same thing. Like maybe we have East Coast Pro and Area Code in August, maybe. But like you're going to have – like for next year's draft, it's very possible. You're going to have nothing from this summer on guys. You're not even going to have like, oh, I ran into that guy as a high school junior or I saw that guy pitch as a college sophomore because you got four weeks. And, I mean, you can, like teams will definitely – even if we have some form of some kind of high school showcases – Teams are going to be way behind in terms of scouting for next year. Well, and I don't even know if you can catch up. You just aren't going to have those looks at guys this summer. I just I can't. You know, maybe well, maybe I'm wrong. I just I, I was reading on D1 baseball and they're ta- they had a story in the Cape closing and they're listing all these other summer leagues that have plans to go ahead or maybe a couple a couple teams will operate. And I just I don't see how that's really going to be possible. And, and likewise with all these showcases and travel teams during the summer, that's not going to happen. Well, this is uh, I appreciate you answering all this stuff for me. I, I love talking this. I'm I'm a I'm a baseball guy. We talk a ton of football on here, but I'm a I'm a big baseball guy too. So I'm, I always love talking shop on that. And uh, Jim, you've you've given us some great insight and some great answers. I want to close with you today. We close all our interviews the same way. We do something called the Smart Sixteen. It's sixteen. Is that Kirby kinda- Smart Sixteen or? You got it. Quick hit, quick hit questions in honor of Coach Smart. Okay. So okay. I'll throw a match in and I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. So a lot of these are football centric. So if okay. you want to switch some of these to make them baseball centric, I'm totally okay with that. Okay. Okay. All right. So first one is what's your middle name? Robert. Who is your favorite dog? And again, this could be football player, basketball player, baseball player. You can pick. Wow. That's like tough. Cause there's so many of them. 
You know what? It's funny. I'm going to say Mike Rebin. I miss him. You know, he died uh, unfortunately last year you know, of cancer. But I, like those two, you heard me talking about him earlier. Those two games, like I, I did. I always admire the fact. Like I just can't conceive of beating Mike Messina twice, and then saying I'm not going to play pro ball because I got to take care of my family. So I'm going to say Mike Rebin. Okay. How about your favorite game that you've ever attended? Favorite game, I. Well, I'm going to go with them beating Oklahoma State for the national title, two to one. What's your favorite rivalry of Georgia's? You know, I, I'm going to say Florida, just because I I feel like I mean it gives me pleasure to too. I mean, Georgia Tech is not that very good, like in the sports I care about. So I'd say Florida, like because I think I mean their baseball programs as good as anybody's in the country, and their football programs had some ups and downs, but I'd say definitely Georgia Florida. All right, I'm going to ask you for two answers on this next question. What's your favorite away stadium in the Southeastern Conference for football and for baseball? You know, it's funny because I didn't travel as much when I was at Georgia for baseball. Like, I never went to a game in Florida. I never went to a game at Vandy. Vandy wasn't anything at the time. I never went to a game at, at LSU. So I guess I, I – I mean, and, and then when I was on the beat at, at Baseball America back in the day, we didn't travel that much. So I guess I'll say Mississippi State. Um, I haven't been to a lot of them. Football-wise, you know, we obviously never went to the Swamp because we, we played in Jacksonville. We played, We stopped playing Alabama right when I got to school. Like, I, I never traveled to Alabama. That's a tough one. I don't know. Can I pick Jacksonville? Can I cop out and pick, yeah, pick yeah. the Gator Bowl? I'll pick the Gator Bowl. We, we traveled That'll... a lot for football. I just never went to LSU or Alabama. I, went, I was at Auburn, the game where they turned the sprinklers on the fans. I was covering that game at the end of the game. I went there. I mean, it's like, it was weird. We – like Clemson, like is almost more memorable because we used to play Clemson every year, right. and, I, and I went up and covered those games. So I mean, Clemson was probably maybe made the biggest impression on me of an actual on-campus football stadium. How about loudest home game you ever attended? So this one we'll, we'll say for Sanford. What's the loudest game you ever attended at Stan- at Sanford? Yeah, it might be the last one. Like it was funny because I, I didn't. So I graduated in December '88, and I I know I went back to a game like in the early '90s. I went back, and then. I went to Athens during the Olympics in 96. They were doing f- soccer at the at Sanford Stadium. We had one off day for baseball, and they have media buses that take the media everywhere, like the amazing logistics. And so on my off day, I took I rode the bus out to Sanford S- Stadium and walked around. I hadn't been – so until I was on the Grady Alumni Board, which I was on for the last three years, I hadn't been back to Georgia since 96. And it was very cool to, to come back. And I went to the homecoming game against Missouri two years ago. And – that was louder than I could. I mean, we had big crowds, but like the stadium holds more people. And I think yeah. it feels a little bit more enclosed. So that was, that was louder. And we crushed Missouri, although in, in what turned out to be foreshadowing, we were playing Drew Locke, who obviously is a good arm. They beat us for two or three deep touchdowns. And I remember the first one's like, okay, I have the second one's like, like, how does that happen? Like, like, why do we not have better safety play? Like, like, how does that, how do we get full twice on that? And then fast forward to, Alabama national championship game. And I, oh. and I, that was my first thought if that happened was like, ah, oh, like I saw that during the Missouri game. So, yeah. But all right. You get to choose the headlining act at the Georgia theater. Who do you choose? I would take, if I was going old school, I'd take Bruce Springsteen. If I was taking new school, I'd take the, or newer school, I'd take the killers. And you know, one of my regrets about Athens was it was when I went to school, that's when Athens was the, music capital of the u.s and i when i checked out some of that but like if i could go back in time i would i would definitely check out a lot more 
What is the cocktail you're mixing for the world's largest outdoor cocktail party? I like I like a mojito. I like, I don't know if I'd bring like a giant like that. Kind of hard to put in a flask. Like I, I'd have to I'd have to probably be out in the parking lot where you could use an actual glass. But but it would be a mojito. What is your favorite place to eat in Athens? So you're back in Athens for one meal. Where do you have to go? You know, it's funny because like a lot of places I went to when I went to school aren't there anymore. Oh, what's it? It's not the name. Is it Last Stand Cafe? What's you know? I'm talking. Yeah. I'm looking this up here, and I because I've eaten there several times. I just, um, it's not the next door cafe. Last Stand Cafe. I'll, I'll figure this out. I, get, I love that. Um, what is the place called? Ah, it's like I know where it is. Like if you show me a map of Athens, I can. They, they, it's like they just have a really good menu. They have like a bunch of craft beers. I think it's the last resort. I think it's the last. Oh yeah, last resort, resort grill. That that's that. Yeah, well, that was terrible. Yeah. Like we can tell. Like I do actually oh, yeah. like it more. But like going back there, the last three years, we're there twice a year for these alumni board meetings at the Brady School. I would always go to the last resort grill. So I was, yeah. and then my daughter visited Georgia. My my youngest daughter, she was considering trying to go to school there, and um, we went to Mama's Boy for breakfast, which was. Okay. Yeah, so th- those yeah. would be my two places on top of my list. Yeah, yeah, we had uh, we had Jamie Dean on, and Jamie Dean said that uh, if you go to Mama's Boy, you can have you can eat a biscuit that'll stay with you all day long, brother. <laughs> we so. ordered way too much food. We ordered way too much food the first time we went there. All right, so this is um, and again, you can do this for if you're if you're following the dogs in baseball or football. But do you have any game day superstitions? No, I mean it's more along the lines of like the, you know, like when they're playing Alabama, we we're this close to win the national title. And it became sort of more. It's kind of like, okay, I'm not gonna change. Uh, I try to stay in the same position, you know, silly stuff like that. But no, I don't have like a a lucky shirt or you know, a special drink or anything like that. But like, like if the game gets tense, I'll tend to kind of like, okay, we're not gonna move. We'll we'll hold our position here and and hope it continues. How about your favorite Sanford Stadium pregame tradition? So whether it be uh, Redcoat Marching Band spelling out Georgia, um, Larry Munson coming over the loudspeaker and kind of leading the dogs in, the lone trumpeter, what, which one Which one is your I'd favorite? say Larry Munson. you got to go with Larry Munson. I mean, it's like, I mean, you think of all the great plays in Georgia history, and on, you know, on most of them you think of Larry's call. Like, you know, Lindsey Scott, Lindsey Scott, or the hobnail boot and – all that stuff. Like he's synonymous with those plays. So it would, it would definitely be Larry. Yeah. That, that's probably ours too. I, that one gives me chills, man. It, it gets me ready to go. So that's a good one. All right. Black jerseys for the football team. Yes or no. I'm going to say no. I, I just like I just like the way the red looks. Uh, you know, you know what ticks me off as a Georgia grad is, is being somewhere wearing like a Georgia, like polo, like some of the logo. And I'm up here in Chicago. And I want somebody like, is that Green Bay? And it's like, come on, like it's not green and yellow, like, like, <laughs> like up here that that gets me. Like it happens every once in a while. And you're just like, come on. So no, I, I I like I like the red. I I just think the red looks looks really good. I, I don't I don't think they've had a ton of success with the black, have they? It's like yeah, it backfired it, on us more often than not. Yeah, the first year it was it was great, right? I think they were undefeated in the black, and I think it's been kind of a mixed bag. And Kirby's only done it, I think, one or two times, and it was against non-power five opponents. I think we've talked yeah. about this with some other guests, but I I think he he keeps it in the fold for recruiting purposes because they look sharp, right? And I think the yeah. kids love them. And um, but I think at his core, you know, Georgia guy, Georgia high school guy, played there. I think he. 
I don't know. I think he likes the tradition of it. I think he likes, you know, red jerseys, silver britches, red hats. You know, I think that's what that's what he wants. Yeah. So that's kind I'm of my him. thought on it. What's the loss you're still not over as a fan? Okay, it's funny because it's like you might think I would say Alabama game. But no, it would be losing to Fresno State in the 2008 World Series. We we won the first game, lost, lost the last two. And I'm trying to think of a tactful way to put this. is going to sound like sour grapes, but, but I'll say it. <laughs> they, we, the, the bats weren't fair. We had crappy – we were Nike school. We had crappy Nike bats that broke. Who I was talking to somebody. I was talking to one of the coaches who's, who's now a scout. Well, I probably said too much there. Anyway, I was talking to somebody about this recently. They, they, they had trouble getting enough bats for Omaha. The Nike bats sucked. They broke. This was back when the bats were – I don't know if this was – the bats were still crazy. or Maybe they have been toned down some. But anyway, our bats sucked. We had these, these terrible, terrible bats that put us at a horrible disadvantage to the point where – I don't know if you know Chris Lakos, who's the Georgia baseball SID. Yeah. Who I hired for the red and black years ago to cover women's tennis. And I think the next year Chris was asked about it and Chris was more diplomatic than I was. I don't think he used the word sucked and mentioned how bad the bats were and got taken off. Nike. I think Nike had him removed from the baseball SID job, like baseball beat for like a year. Our bats no, uh. suck. We had, we had crappy bats and then, I'm saying this as a Georgia fan. I, I would not write this because I could not prove it. But let's just say if you ask people who cover college baseball, the thought would be that Fresno State's bats were may not have passed inspection. Oh. That they may have been um, amplified in some ways. Because you had, you, had, you had a guy – who had like two like sprained wrists crushing balls out of the stadium. Like if you go like so anyway, yes, I, this clearly is one that rankles me, but yeah, I, I like that. It was, it was weird. My wife, that was the only world series I've missed like t- in total since 89 when I started working for baseball America, taking my kids out. And my wife was really sick that year. She's fine now, thankfully, but it was like a tough summer and it would have like meant a lot if they'd won. That was like, they kept winning. They're beating like they, that was a stack college world series. They're beating all these good teams. They Beckham hit the late homer to win game one. Josh Fields comes and closes it. And they're like, that would have meant a lot. And it, it still rankles me that basically we had just crappy, ridiculous bats. Nike doesn't, hasn't made bats for years. We had crappy, ridiculous bats because we were Nike school and Fresno state had, again, people listen to this. They'll probably piss off Fresno state fans. Illegal bats. They had bats that were not legal, and and so it it, it still ticks me off. Still ticks me off. I got to tell you, we we have boss and I kind of go through with our different guests, and we pick out our favorite answers people have given. That is hands down the best answer that we've ever gotten to the lost your stone ever. And I will also tell you, I am always here for any type of conspiracy when it comes to a loss or anything related. It's so not I'm, a conspiracy. It's not a conspiracy. <laughs> I'm telling you. If you ask people who covered college baseball, again, nobody could write that. And so I probably shouldn't just be saying it, but I admit I'm saying this as a fan. But no, if you ask anybody who covered college baseball, then, you know, apologies to Fresno State. I'm sorry I'm detracting. But if you ask anybody who covered college baseball, then they will tell you the same thing. So uh, I'm, it, that's not just sour grapes. And well, yeah, hey, that, it still bothers me. Boss and I are going to be on that train now. I'm spreading that gospel everywhere I can spread. Now, I will say, uh, just to, just to, is a, 
mild form apology for Fresno State. To Fresno State's credit, they were without their best player. It was a kid named Tanner Shepherds who would have been top five pick in the draft who was hurt. And it still amazes me. I mean, they were famously a number four seed, although they were a much better team in the second half season than first. But um, they did win the national title without their best player. And I don't think – I know Justin Wilson, who's, who's still pitching the big leagues, was on the team. But I don't think there were a lot of big leaguers on that club either. So they, they, they did a lot of things well. But I just – I'm still bitter. I wish, the bat, I wish the teams had been using the same bats. All right, so normally, and you'll appreciate this, I wrote this question with Bull Durham in mind. The The actual question is, there ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing noon kickoffs, yes or no? But I'm going to give you the straight Crash Davis. There ought to be a constitutional amendment outlawing AstroTurf and the designated hitter, yes or no? <laughs> so I can outlaw whatever I want? Yeah, sure. Or, in baseball, uh, yeah. In baseball? Well, I've often said, if I became commissioner and I had power to do everything, I would get away with all these uh, draft and international bonus restrictions and let teams spend what they want on talent. But, but the other one that's made more relatable is it's, it would be a given. You cannot have players on a field without names on their back. Like there are teams, even in, in pro ball, if you're watching backfield baseball, who will send out guys with just numbers, sometimes with, with three guys wearing the same number, so you don't know who you're looking at. So I, I guess one that would be more practical would be if you're if you're you're in professional baseball even let's do it for college baseball so I, I don't have to like be looking at my roster if you're on the field working out you got to wear something that has name and number on your back I like it I like that all right last question college football playoff expand to eight teams or find how it is do any of your guests say find how it is <laughs> do any of we, them say that no most people are on the I want more football. So yeah, we generally well, here's get- the thing. You're, you're talking to somebody and look, I, I'm a Georgia football fan, but I, I bleed much more red and black for the baseball team than the football team. I don't, I'm not, you know, wearing the face paint, you know, like living and dying every Saturday. Like, you know, I'm, I'm not away from the TV, but you're talking to somebody who, who lives here in the middle of big 10 country. People don't realize how the sec is. And I don't even think the SEC was at its peak last year. I'm tired of hearing Ohio State lost to Iowa. They should have been in the playoffs two years ago. They only won loss. Yeah, why don't you play like a full conference schedule in the SEC? Like it, it's going to be totally different. Like and no, like like two like one loss in the SEC is like being undefeated in another conference. But because you have five Power Five conferences, it doesn't work that way. Like I I will <laughs> somebody just said doesn't live and die. The last two years, I understand the mechanics of why Oklahoma got the bid. I understand that. And we didn't do ourselves any favors by mailing it in against Texas in the Cotton Bowl or Sugar Bowl, whatever bowl that was two years ago. But no, it's just not. I mean, you're basically teams are getting picked based on how many laws or they won a conference title. And, you know, two years ago, you know, when we gave Alabama a game and lost in the fourth quarter to a team everybody thought was going to be the national champion until Clemson beat them, you know, Oklahoma loses to Texas and comes back and beats Texas. And I know we lost to Texas because. Guys didn't play and people were mailing it in. But, like, I thought we were a better team than Oklahoma. Like Oklahoma with that defense, I mean, I know they had, you know, Baker, I mean, Kyler Murray that year. They're not losing just one game in the SEC. Teams are going to be, you know, putting up points on them left and right. Like, I mean, I mean, they would have been competitive, but they're probably two-loss team. And it was the same thing last year. I knew because we lost – I would have been more angry if we'd beaten South Carolina and been undefeated and lost to LSU – which, by the way, I will point out, we gave them a better game than any of the teams they played in the BCS. We played them closer, and that was with dropping passes. I mean, it could have been even 
I mean, the score was what the score is. We still played them tougher. We didn't give up. Joe Burrow didn't throw for seven touchdowns in the first half against us. Right. Uh, you know, that type of thing. But again, like we probably, even if we'd beaten South Carolina, we're undefeated and lost to LSU because we lost to them by a sizable margin. We probably wouldn't have gotten in the playoffs and that would have been wrong. So I, from an interest of fairness and like, I realize it's, not easier on the kids, but I think you need an 18. If, if you really want to be fair, you know, make it be you take each of the five power conferences and like the Pac-12 champion has no, I mean, when's the last time they were even in the playoff, but you'd have an 18 playoff. You could have your five team, your five power conference champions, and then take, you know, two or th- you know, the two or three other teams that belong, you know, that maybe had, you know, stubbed their toes somewhere along the way. Um, Cause I mean, the last two years, I think we were what the 15, <laughs> Yeah, it, like, right. like, like to get in. So uh, that's why I said I can't imagine anybody, you know, on a Georgia centric uh, podcast is going to say, "Oh, let's keep it the way it is." I, I think you did. I mean, well, why not? I mean, I, I'm not of this. Oh, we can't do away with the bull system. Yeah, you can do away with the bull system. Like, like, there's line of pockets of people. That's why we're not doing away with it. But you know, you could do a you could do a 16 team playoff if you want. You could figure out a way to make that happen. Yeah, so I'm a little bit biased because um, I, I went to – I played baseball at William Mary. So William Mary's 1AA for football, and the 1AA system, we have 2014 playoff. So all the yeah, way through I mean, college, how is that okay for that level? Like, like right. it doesn't – like, we're not killing those kids. That's that's why the um, – when people talk about the academic argument, I'm always like, get out of here. It has, this has nothing to do with academics or the rigorousness of the academic schedule. Plus, you all about- playing that playoff in December. Like, most exactly. of the kids would be on winter break. Exactly. Yeah, they're talking – well, it would be in finals, and I'm like – Look, they make it work for one double A. I'm sure y'all could figure it out at the big time. What it is, is to your point is there's too many people in the towns that host bowls that are getting money on these kickbacks from whatever the bowl hosting committees are and all this kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with the kids. It always bothers me when they try to put these kids in front of like, oh, we're looking out for the kids. Get out of here. Like, let's do this the best possible way. And it should be at least eight teams, I think, because then yeah. you know you're getting everybody who's got a shot at it. I mean, I'm fine if they want to limit it to eight, but it, it should be at least eight. And then let everybody roll it out there, and we'll see who we'll see who takes it home. I mean, yeah. go with it. No, I agree. Yeah. All right, Jim. Well, well that's it. You've, you've got off the hot seat with the Smart 16. We appreciate you being such a good sport today, and thank you for being so generous with your time with us. Uh, we certainly enjoyed it, and you're welcome to come back here and talk baseball anytime you want, brother. We, we enjoyed yeah, it, man. Ha- so, have me back anytime you want. I mean, I, this is much more fun than talking about the coronavirus, but like you can tell I'm passionate. In fact, can I, can I tell one more story? One thing I, I forgot. Absolutely. To get absolutely. I was yeah. going to say like, like one of the best journalism lessons I got is just another way that the Georgia was very good to me. Is so like my first beat was basketball. And I don't really know that much about basketball, like especially then. And we were doing, I guess we were getting ready to play Kentucky at the Coliseum. And it was an NBC game. Like, like because not because of us, because of Kentucky. Although we used to go to the tournament all the time back then. It was totally different under Hugh Durham. And so, uh, Bob Costas and Pete Maravich were doing the game and I was doing like, yeah, long, long, I mean, this is how long ago it was. So I was doing a few, I I had some, I was doing a story on something. I don't know what it was. I needed to talk to Hugh Durham. So I was out at practice one day for, you know, when it was time to talk to coach and like, I'm, I don't know, I was probably what, 18, 19 years old and Costas and, and, and Maravich are there just kind of, you know, talking to, Hugh Durham, shucking and jiving with him, having a good time, you know, you know, shooting the breeze, blah, blah. And I'm just kind of standing there off to the side, like, you know, waiting for them to get done. And 
Hugh Durham keeps, you know, and it's not like I covered the team regularly. Like I was a favorite of Hugh Durham. Hugh Durham keeps, he'd probably see me at a couple games looking over at me every once in a while. It's because on for like 20 or 30 minutes. Like I'm not, I'm not going to go interrupt Bob Costas and Pete Maravich, you know, like I actually needed Hugh Durham more than they did at that point. Like they're just kind of more just, you know, shooting it with him. And so finally, you know, Hugh gets done with them and he, and he comes over and he, he's like, you need to talk to me. And I, and I said, yeah. And I'll, I'll never forget. And like, again, I barely even knew Hugh Durham. I, 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 I mean, he must've figured out I was with the student paper and I probably been a couple games, but he just said, look, he's like, he's like, don't ever be afraid to come ask me a question. He's like, your job is just as important as their job. You know, they, oh, they cool. make a lot more money and they're on TV, but you have a job to do too. And your job's important to you. You know, don't feel like you have to take a back seat, you know, cause it's Bob Costas and people. And, and it's funny cause like, I, like I said, I didn't really know Hugh Durham. Like I doubt, I, I know there's no way he knew my name, you know, until I introduced myself then. But that was just a, like, I was thinking about that when I, at one point I was like, you know, Hugh, that was like a really nice lesson. He, he said, you know, and he didn't have to do that, but he's like, no, like your, your job matters just as much as their job does. You know, if you have, if you need me, come tell me you need me and I'll talk to you. So I oh, love my cool. time at Georgia. That's why, that's why I've gone an hour and a half. I could, I could go another hour and a half because I had so, it's so many fond memories of that place and it did so much for me. Yeah, I love that. I'm so, I'm glad you said that because that that's been our kind of push with this. Is um, I think your alma mater is such a special thing to everybody, right? And I think what happens is everybody goes out in the world and they follow their path, and not everybody gets to hear the full story, right? So we yeah. just want to shine as big a light as possible on you know people's Georgia story and and how it's affected them and and what a special place Athens is and and all those things. So yeah, we're we're so happy you came on and uh, love all the work you do. And um, I know that our our guys can follow you at Jim Callis MLB on Twitter. Is there anywhere else our listeners can follow you? Yeah, I mean, it's like all our stuff's at MLBpipeline.com. And, and one of the things I think that's, that's really nice about our site is it's all free. Nothing's behind a paywall. All of our videos and scattering reports and stories are all on MLBpipeline.com. I usually try to tweet a lot, everything I do, a lot of the stuff we do, I'll tweet on my thing. But it's... Uh, I'm kind of, I've, I've kept it to one social media. I'm not on Facebook, not on Instagram, just Twitter. So, yeah, well, guys, give, give Jim a follow. His Twitter feed's fantastic. Tons of great info, especially if you're a baseball fan. Just so much good uh, insight on there. Um, it's how I found out about the draft being cut back was on Jim's Twitter. I mean, he's always got the best information. So please follow him, not just because he's great, but also because he's, he's a damn good dog, too. So, Jim, thanks so much for spending time with us and uh, have a great rest of your week. Yeah, you too. Thanks. I really appreciate it. That's our interview with Jim Callis. Again, thank you to Jim for joining the the program. We certainly enjoyed our conversation with him. He was fantastic to talk to. Boss, what were your thoughts on the conversation? A couple things. First off, I'll be the first to admit, I am not an MLB guy. I love college baseball now, and it is strictly because of the dogs. I haven't followed MLB since 2001, really. Um, that was the last year I really got was into it, uh, my freshman year of college. But 2000, the 2008 run for the dogs really got me into college baseball, and I've been into it ever since. Um, I primarily follow the dogs in SEC. But his passion and his talk about the 87 through 90 years, just during the interview and listening to it, re- listening to it again, editing it made me want to run through a brick wall. Just And he was <clears throat> just covering the team. He wasn't a player. He's basically a student and a fan and a writer, which is awesome. So his passion was amazing. And his theory on the 08 team, like I distinctly remember that series. Um, my son was 
five months old, six months old. And I remember watching most of that series with him in my arms and being super pumped after game one. And then just, you know, the gut punch after gut punch after the dinger, after dinger, after dinger from Fresno state. And it was just miserable. It was absolutely miserable. So to hear that coming from, and like, I mean, there weren't, Conspiracy. You didn't hear the conspiracy theories because you know we're not in the baseball writing community and stuff like that. So, the, and he, I know he says it's not a conspiracy theory. He says it's a well-known fact. So <laughs> I love um, that. Which I love that. Yeah, I love that. So to hear that from that community, so it's just it's just amazing. I would love to talk to him again. And just to, uh, hearing his insight on the the prospects as well, like his knowledge on that. I mean, obviously he's been doing this a really long time. I mean, what thirty years now. I mean, his insight on prospects and to hear about just to hear about people that we follow while watching Georgia baseball, just listening to Georgia baseball every day when they're playing and stuff like that. And hearing his insight on, you know, people that we think might be really good and have shot playing in the pros. And he's like, eh, they're kind of a fringe guy. And, you know, maybe minors, you know, maybe not stuff like that. It's very interesting. Cause you know, to us, I mean, these guys are really awesome. And he's like, eh, maybe not so much. And just great insight. I would love to love to talk to him again. Yeah, I thought Jim was a just a treasure trove of information. I mean, he if you want to talk dogs baseball with somebody, he's the guy. I mean, you talk about passion. I mean, you hit the nail on the head with that. I, I was I was fired up when we got done talking to him. I I ta- ended up talking to him probably another half hour after we got done the interview, just talking about more baseball subjects. I mean, just just incredible, just wealth of knowledge and just so much exuberance for the topic, which was fantastic. And boy, I'm gonna tell you what, past uh what past couple of interview episodes, we've just gotten some all time smart 16 answers. I mean, that, that answer to lost, you're still not over. I'm just here for it all the way. Like that was awesome. I love when I like try to tell him, I was like, I'm, I'm so here for a conspiracy thing. He was, it's not a conspiracy theory. It's a known fact. <laughs> oh, I just love that. Yeah. It was so good. Um, so yeah, that was, that was awesome. Um, it was just interesting to hear his story too, you know, just how his time at UGA and, covering the red and black. I thought that was a, a great story told about, um, you know, talking with the scout and the scout asking him about players. Cause, and because he'd been to all the games, he kind of knew X, Y, and Z about the team. I just thought, uh, all that was really interesting. And, um, you know, I also did not know that he had been on the board with the Grady school. So that was really interesting to learn too. And just goes to show you what a phenomenal product the Grady school's putting out. I mean, we've now talked to Jim and we talked to Olivia, both, extremely impressive and if that is the quality of person and professional that the Grady school's putting out man what a great endorsement for for, for Grady you know yeah I, I thought Jim was fantastic and would love to have him on again and I think he would come on again he you know he he loves talking baseball and we certainly will have him I thought it was it ended up being fortuitous timing too because we had talked a little bit about the draft during the interview and they just announced, I believe yesterday officially that the draft is going to be five rounds. So some of the stuff that Jim talked about in the interview has come to fruition. So yeah, I, we, we're really, really appreciative that Jim came on the show. And again, please give him a follow at Jim Callis MLB on Twitter. That's C A L L I S at Jim Callis MLB and also give MLB pipeline a follow tons of tons of great insight and knowledge from Jim. And um, you know, he's obviously very passionate about, UGA and Georgia baseball and we, we just really really enjoyed speaking with him and, and wish him the best 
One other quick thing before we sign off today. He also gives great life advice. His story about, I can't remember the uh, the basketball coach's name, but when they were, he was talking to Bob Koss, the, he was waiting to talk because the basketball coach was talking to Bob Costas and Pete Maravich. And the basketball coach was like, you know, you're no less important to them, even though you're just right for the student paper. You know, don't take your career any less seriously than them just because they're the announcers and they're making the amount of money that they're making. Your career is just as important. And that's great life advice. That, that's an awesome story as well. Just, you know, he gives great life advice as well on top of the great knowledge. Just wanted to point that out there as well. Ah, uh, yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up. That was, I thought that was maybe my favorite part of the interview, to be honest. I'm glad you brought that up because number one, I think it shares a great insight into how we all feel at certain points as we're beginning our careers or starting our careers. Yeah, I thought that was cool. And I thought it also spoke to coach, you know, I mean, what a, what a great insight into his character to say something like that and offer that knowledge, you know, and obviously it had an effect on Jim. So, I mean, that, that was really cool. I was, I was happy that he shared that and I'm glad you, you pointed that out. So again, Jim was fantastic. Uh, obviously somebody that, that we should all be proud of to have associated with UGA and to be a UGA grad. So let's support him and follow him in any way we can. And again, thank you so much to, to Jim for coming on the show and go dogs, sick them. Go dogs. Hey, George is better now. 